human, clinical sexologist, accredited sexuality educator, Madonna, whore, cis woman, queer, friend, employee, business owner, feminist, advocate, the list goes on. Hi, at the heart of it all, I'm Karen Bradfield and welcome to my podcast, Messy Hats. Today on the show, I'm going to talk through some questions that I often get asked by parents and carers about delivering sexuality education at home. I've worked across a whole range of sectors and I wanted to share some of those key learnings to really support you in your journey as you raise sexually safe and healthy children. Doing sexuality education at home is really important. It's the first education that children receive and so those early learnings really set the tone for their future sexual experiences. The first question I often get asked is what are those early conversations that we can start having if we're not really ready to kind of launch straight into the sex stuff? Starting with gender is a really great way to start, uh, both for sexuality education but also for some education around social justice and respect. Gender is really complex and diverse. It's an identity within ourselves and an expression that we communicate to the world. But it's also a socially defined thing when we talk about stereotypes. And as social norms change and scientific advances emerge, our understandings of gender also shift. We know that identity is largely fixed by the age of three. Little kids already get that. They can quite clearly tell you what gender they feel like. And then with puberty and early adulthood, gender tends to be a bit more flexible as identities emerging and changing. In later life, it becomes a bit more stable. So you might start a conversation by asking them, how do they know they're a boy or a girl or non-binary? Or talking about how gender lives in our hearts and our minds and that we get to express it how we want. Teachable moments are really good for those conversations too. So looking out for books or things on TV. The binary notion that many people hold on to, so male-female or masculine-feminine, is a social construct and it incorrectly pairs the natal sex of an individual, so the genitals that they're born with, and it overlays a range of abilities and behaviours that's supposed to apply to that person. So, for example, we say things like people with vulvas should like pink. It's really quite an arbitrary way of categorising the entire population of Earth into two categories. If we rigidly accept the idea that people with penises are men and that they must be masculine or that people with vaginas are women and that they must be feminine and that because of this they have varying traits and abilities, then we're really setting up a lot of the issues that we see in society. And that's why it's such an important topic. We can talk about rigid gender norms and how they contribute to gender inequality, to violence against women, to high suicide rates amongst cis men and LGBTIQA plus community. They all really stem from the idea that people have to behave a certain way because of the kind of genitals that they've got. And when we frame it like that, we can already see how unhelpful that is. Toxic masculinity in particular is fed by an adherence to these outdated notions of gender. So what we do have is an opportunity to raise a generation of young people who can let go of these philosophies, who really understand that people are people and that some people cry and some people like pink, some people run companies, some people never get married and all of those things are perfectly acceptable ways to be human. When we raise kids to be accepting and respectful of the diversity, It can happen from day one and talking about and teaching gender is a really important part of that. 
So for young children, we might encourage them to engage in all types of play. And that's really education on gender without having to do any work. We also need to make sure we're using language really carefully. So avoiding statements such as boys are strong, boys don't cry, or you're so pretty, statements that align girl with being beautiful or well-behaved. One of the many issues that we do see in society and that I hear in therapy quite a lot with heterosexual couples is that overwhelming responsibility or mental load for daily living that's often placed on one partner. And when we unpack it, it really does stem from that early learning or early socialisation where we raise people with vaginas to be girls who are compliant, who are good, who are responsible, who keep house, who stay quiet. And what's one of the reasons why victims of sexual assault don't speak out? It's because they've been raised to not make a fuss. They don't want to be a problem. And so as you can see, that early learning, simply letting the child choose the toy, the colour that they like, being careful of the language that we use, we're already starting to unpack some of these really big social problems. And once again, without much work, we're not having to talk about really awkward stuff. We're just embracing diversity and embracing respect. So we teach our children to make noise and to speak out, to play games with gender that challenge young children to think outside the box. Colour isn't gendered. Anyone can wear pink. And if we look historically, pink was actually a colour of power. There's some really good picture books that you can use as well that speak to gender stereotypes. And Jacob's New Dress by Sarah and Ian Hoffman is a good one. And Julian is a Mermaid by Jessica Love. I've also posted several lists of gender expansive books over on the Facebook page. So one way we might open up conversations with primary school age children is to ask them if they can think of other examples of how we might sort the entire planet into two boxes. And they're probably going to struggle with that. There really aren't many other examples of where we just divide all the people on earth in half and say this half is over there and this half is over there, except maybe currently where we've got inside and outside. But we're really comfortable teaching kids that some people are funny and some are good at maths. And then when we think it's related to sexuality, we suddenly become really uncomfortable and we don't teach them the other ways that humans are unique. So if you're worrying about discussions that need to include genitals, like are you going to have to say some girls have a penis? The reality of it is that worrying about what kind of genitals or private parts another person has isn't really appropriate behaviour in most circumstances. If we're talking and learning about bodies, you might say, not everyone's body looks like this because we're all different and our gender is in our heads and our hearts. And that's quite simple. You've not had to have a huge discussion about any kind of gender or private parts. And if you're looking for another great resource, the Gender Unicorn is really cool and they've got some colouring in pages. So it'll help you stick to discussions that emphasise that the way people feel and express themselves is different. And you might even say something like, if Jacob feels like a girl, we'll respect that. We love Jacob for who they are. Another question I often get asked is what topics should I avoid when talking to my primary school aged children? Really sexuality education has to be age appropriate and if we stick to that as our guide then no topics are out of bounds or inappropriate. So take pornography for example. We have to speak to five and six year olds about pornography. And that may leave many of you clutching your pearls or filled with dread right now. But if we reframe that in an age appropriate way, we need to talk to five and six year olds about online safety and what to do if they see pictures of people's private parts on a computer or a phone. 
So we don't have to use the word pornography, but we do have to talk about it because we're raising children in a digital world and the risk of them encountering pornography is really real. It might be that they stumble across a parent's porn stash, but now it's not the pile of Playboy magazines. It's a computer folder or a web history, and that opens up a whole rabbit hole, and it can be really traumatising for kids. When we look at the average age of exposure to porn, it's about 11. So if your child hasn't seen it, I can guarantee that someone in their class has, and they're sharing information about it, and they're talking about it. So we need to have education and discussions around fantasy. And again, that might just be around media more generally, looking at the way clothes are marketed, look at models, looking at Victoria's Secret, having conversations about the difference between that and why have those people been chosen. So they're really great places to start those conversations. We also need to be aware that language like good and bad pictures can be really unhelpful because sometimes young people do feel aroused when they encounter pornography online. And if we're using the words bad pictures and pairing that with their arousal, then really what we're teaching them is shame about their body and those kind of quite natural physiological responses. Very few people have sex just to make babies. The main reason people have sex is because it feels good. And if we pretend that that's not true, then we're not actually protecting kids and we're certainly not giving them any skills to have safe and pleasurable experiences with their body as they get older. The reproductive focus of those conversations too really assumes that penis in vagina is some kind of gold standard for sexual activity. When we give young people the kind of information and education, whether that's at school or at home, that really centres that reproductive focus and the penis in vagina focus, we leave them without those skills for real world encounters. And if we assume that a penis is for pleasure and it's the most important part and that once the person with the penis has orgasm, sexual activity ceases, we're, again, we're teaching a whole lot of people that their pleasure doesn't matter and that their no doesn't matter. It creates a power imbalance and it's particularly evident in, amongst cis women in heterosexual relationships because in their adult sexual relationships, and we see this in the research, there is that orgasm gap where they, uh, cis women in heterosexual relationships actually have the least amount of orgasms out of anybody in paired, partnered sexual activity. And that's something that we spoke about in the International Women's Day episode. It also causes a whole lot of issues for people who might be losing their erections or experiencing ejaculation difficulties, and that's the perfect storm. So we're already teaching that rigid gender stereotypes exist, which leads to that toxic form of masculinity, and then we mix that in with a lack of sexuality education about, about bodies and pleasure, and there aren't any winners in that scenario. And when we put on our hats as parents and carers and look at the kind of world and the kind of lives we want our children to have... I think most people would agree that that's not what we want, that we want people who are safe, who are healthy, who are well, who understand that they have a right to pleasure and a right to their bodies. And the same really goes for consent. So we need to be teaching about that long before it has anything to do with sexual activity. Consent to touch people is necessary and we get to decide what feels right for our bodies. So games like tickling or even things like sharing Lego are all opportunities to start to teach about consent. One of the things that I do hope comes out of COVID is that people have a much greater appreciation for getting consent to social touch, that actually thrusting a hand out and expecting the other person to shake it is not okay, that that's the opposite of consent. 
And that activity in and of itself really demonstrates the complexities of just saying no. When someone throws their hand out at you for a handshake, it's very hard to go, no, actually, I don't want to shake your hand. And that might be an experience that many people have had over the past few weeks of actually people wanting to shake their hand and have to go, you know what, I've stopped shaking hands now. It feels awkward because we're not given the skills in early childhood about hearing no and about saying no. Part of the issue, though, is that we're really uncomfortable with the idea of talking to kids about safety and pleasure. And so what we do instead is we think, oh, just stick to the biological stuff, the reproduction stuff. It's scientific. It's easy. But when we do that, we're actually still sending messages about pleasure and safety. And particularly when it's delivered without support or when people are using outdated lessons, the message in that can be really harmful. So take puberty classes, for example. If we're teaching about periods, we teach about pregnancy, um, and we aim that conversation at people with vaginas and uteruses. What's the conversation then that's often had with penis owners? It's about erections and ejaculation. So we don't speak about the vulva or clitoris at all, which that creates a disconnect. It emphasises that one person's bodily functions are about pleasure and that the other person's bodily functions are a problem that just need to be managed. What we actually need to do is focus on what's amazing about periods and have that conversation with people who have penises. We need to teach everyone how to accurately label a vulva and a vagina, the same as we do with the penis and testicles. And we need to talk about wet dreams and erections as something that really most people experience, regardless of what kind of body parts they have. So regardless of what topic we're teaching and what age group we're teaching it to, it is really about centering the respect and consent and the mutuality of sexual experience. So it doesn't matter what sexual activity people are engaging in, if it's consensual, if it's mutual, if it's respectful. And it's really looking at intimacy as the focus of that. People can learn about reproduction in a book. Our job when we're providing education is really to give young people skills on empathy on seeking and giving consent, negotiating safer sex, understanding their own identity and pleasure, sexual communication, managing conflict, lots of those relational skills, and teaching people how to listen to feelings, to identify what feels good, what doesn't, what's it like to feel safe, what's it like to listen and to speak and to show respect for yourself. They're not sexual skills, they're life skills. And most parents and carers would say, oh, I can do that, I can teach those skills. So we need to focus on that. It's when we add the word sexual that people get a bit uncomfortable and, oh, I don't want to do that, but you already are doing it. So when we frame sexuality education in those terms, it definitely seems a lot less scary and a lot more attainable. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be teaching reproduction. In primary school age, children have lots of questions. They might have younger siblings, they might have a, a pregnant family member, but it, that's a science chat. And again, we can really look at how we take gender out of that discussion, so not linking gender and body parts and say things like an egg meets a sperm, sometimes in a uterus, sometimes in a test tube. Um, older kids, older primary school age children and tweens might be ready for a bit more of a discussion. So you might start to explain how the penis can deliver sperm into the vagina. Most of the questions that I get asked by upper primary school students are really to do with the relationship stuff. How do I know if someone likes me? What does a kiss feel like? Um, and lots of the other questions just come back to that overriding human question of am I normal? So what do we need to talk about with teenagers? 
It's no secret that the earlier we start talking about sexual safety, pleasure and respect, then the easier that it's going to be. And teens need a whole lot of information. So if we've got those earlier learnings around consent and gender, then it gets easy to understand pleasure. Primary school age children get the generic pleasure skills around things that feel good for their bodies, things that make them feel happy and safe. And then as as they move into adolescence, we can talk more deeply about how this applies to emerging sexual identity. Normalising masturbation is a big part of that. Um, It's not something you need to talk about in a whole lot of detail, but it's something that you need to create an environment where it's okay to talk about and it's accepted as just a normal thing that people will do if they choose to. That sets up conversations around bodies and around feeling comfortable with sexuality. It's also a really important part of sexual response and arousal. Research shows that less than half of people with vaginas masturbate and that's compared with about 80% of penis owners. So we can't expect people to then enter into partnered sexual activity and suddenly understand their own pleasure if they're not masturbating or having earlier experiences with that. People need to be able to communicate their needs and desires and expect and give mutually. So acknowledging that people have sexuality and that it's okay to express it and that actually your first and most important sexual partner will be yourself, all of that can come just from normalising masturbation. So pornography is an ongoing discussion that changes with the age of the child. And for teenagers, it's conversations that really help them critique pornography and understand some of the complex messaging in it. It's not enough to just say porn isn't real because it's not true. It's real people and they're really having sex. So we actually need to have conversations around what is unrealistic about it? How is it unrealistic? What are the standards, again, around safety, pleasure, respect that maybe are absent in pornographic material? or that we should be seeking out in our own sexual relationships. So they do get taught media literacy in schools and that's the foundation that you want to be building on here is actually critiquing media messages. Who's seeking to gain an advantage through this material? And I find young people are often really surprised to learn that free pornography is not there as some kind of social good. It's there to make money and it's there to make billions, if not trillions of dollars every year. Um, And that's really shocking news to them because they don't stop and think, well, why is that there? But if you ask them why they're Nike ads on TV all the time, they would quite clearly say, well, that's to try and sell this idea of being an athlete and sell shoes and so again, yes, we're talking about pornography, but we it doesn't have to be big and scary because the conversations and the skills are already there in some other form. Adolescents, when we look at the research again, they can find cues that kind of say porn is unrealistic, but they often stick to things like pubic hair or breast implants because they have some idea of, of what people's pubic hair might be or of what people's breasts are. Um, They really struggle with that more complicated stuff around what devolvers look like, the normalisation of violence that happens in pornography, the equating violence and pleasure they find very difficult to identify. Um, Things like that vagina's orgasm from penetration alone in pornography is quite a foreign concept when we explain to young people that actually lots of vaginas don't orgasm from penetration alone. So again, we need to keep having those conversations and and going back to that penis in vagina and reproduction, if that's the only thing we teach, then pornography where penis is the star of the show becomes even more realistic because it actually aligns with what we've already been taught. So addressing gender really early on, weaving that through the way we talk about puberty and reproduction, weaving that through pornography, it's helping us 
work through all the much more difficult conversations down the track. And porn isn't just X-rated movies. It's pop-ups when they're doing their homework. It's games that they play. It's ads. We live in this hyper-sexualized, hyper-mediated society and everywhere is a discussion of sex and yet the actual discussions of sex that we need are really shrouded in shame and secrecy and that's what we want to start getting rid of is those taboos so that we can have really frank conversations that help protect young people. Another issue with pornography comes back to that really rigid gender stereotypes and the way that they're portrayed in mainstream free heterosexual porn. And free, so as I was saying before, they're quite surprised to understand why it's there, but also free because young people are paying for pornography. So the type of pornography they're most likely to come across is the free mainstream stuff. And that overwhelmingly shows that men are dominant takers of sexual pleasure and women are there to submissively provide sexual gratification. And as I say that, hopefully you can see the link to what I was saying before around really needing to address these rigid gender stereotypes in young children's play, really looking at the language that we use that sets people up to be submissive or to believe that they should be dominant in situations. Because the earlier that we have those conversations, the less attractive pornography becomes to people because it already doesn't align with their worldview. You know, consent's never sought in pornography. Violence and pleasure are confused all the time. Uh, There's humiliation of people. And increasingly, pornography is shocking because to capture viewers' attention, it needs to be shocking. So having those conversations about consent having conversations about how do we communicate it? What does it look like when people are consenting? You know, sexuality should be joyful. It should be pleasurable. If people are looking like they're in pain, then people need to be using skills around checking in. So those conversations will all start to flow the more you open it up. So starting with the easy stuff, starting with what happened on Home and Away, starting with why do girls need to wear pink, opens up and makes this stuff much easier. In my work as a therapist, I would see so many adult clients struggling with intimacy because of the focus that's been put on penetration or on one person's pleasure. We shouldn't have to wait until we're in our adulthood and really struggling with these issues to start to learn how to experience intimacy and pleasure. The earlier we teach pleasure and we teach safety and we teach respect and consent, then we are setting up that foundation for adulthood where people understand their bodies and they understand their sexuality. We want to be able to teach that intimacy is a delicious experience, that it's got warmth and desire and connection, togetherness. Even if it's a one-night stand, it can still have all those elements. So really normalising discussions by talking about a whole lot of things that bodies feel and experience in shame-free ways. And that's an opportunity for parents and carers to share their own values and attitudes as well. You can talk about what your experiences of relationship have been. You can challenge gender stereotypes in your home through the equality that you demonstrate. You can accept diversity and model that the uniqueness of humanity is something really special and awesome that your home celebrates. And we need to be able to talk about sexual activity as balancing responsibilities with the joy. If we just focus on the risk, then it leads children to believe that sex is something to be approached with caution, that they can only talk about it in hushed whispers, and that they actually really probably shouldn't talk about it at all. It feels really hard. We're tangled in our own messy feelings and lack of sexuality education. But if we don't talk about these things, then the only person giving our kids sexuality education is pornography. 
It's become the default sexuality educator because we're not having those conversations. And so while we sit here and we wonder what can we talk to teens about, is anal okay to discuss? Should upper primary school children be discussing masturbation? While we debate all of those things, the kids are out there Googling them anyway and they're encountering this highly explicit, violent, misogynistic and objectifying material that should never be the model for healthy sexual behaviour. Well, that's all for today's episode of Messy Hats. Thank you for listening as I've taken the first steps in sorting through the pile of messy hats. Join me every fortnight as I talk about vulnerability, authenticity, radical intimacy and the experience of our sexuality. Make sure you subscribe to the Messy Hats podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you haven't already, stop by goldcoastsexology.com.au for more discussions, training courses and resources.